We're here today to talk about Japan and their relationship with Russia. I hadn't realized really how close the countries were. I understand that there's there's places that you could stand in Hokkaido and on a clear night you can see Russia. Is that about correct? Yeah, it is. So I actually spent uh, a month up in that part of Hokkaido and uh, weather up there is not always that great. But uh, on a clear day, you can very clearly see the Russian-held territory. At its closest point, it's only four kilometers wow. uh, away. So yeah, and even if you don't... Welcome to Asia Rising a podcast from La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University. And for the next few episodes, we'll be looking at Japan, strategic defense, and its place in the region. Today's episode is Japan's relationship with Russia, which is a very important neighbor in the best and worst ways possible. Here's my guest for the podcast. I'm James Brown. I'm professor of political science at Temple University, Japan. Thank you for joining me today, James. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So Japan and Russia haven't had an easy history, and at the best it can be described as tense. James begins with an outline of their interaction. Even though they are such close geographic neighbours, for a lot of their history it's been quite a distant relationship. I suppose to begin with, the two empires came into interaction relatively late where you had Japan gradually expanding to the north into Mm. Hokkaido, which originally wasn't a sort of full part of Japan, and then the Russian Empire expanding to the east. And so it was only really in in the second half of the 19th century that relations became significant, substantial to an extent. So they formally set up relations in 1855. Then they had some differences over exactly where their borders would be. Then at the beginning of the 20th century, you have the Russo-Japanese War, Mm. 1904-1905, fought primarily over control over Korea and Manchuria. Then uh, just before the start of the Second World War, you have an undeclared war between the two sides, which is fought in Mongolia. Then the Soviets declare war on Japan at the end of the Second World War and seize Japan's northern islands. And then during the Cold War, they're on opposite sides. So really, a lot of that history is being either conflict or tensions. Yeah, yeah, very much over, over territory, it seems. That's right, yeah, Yeah. on uh, deciding exactly where the border should be to the north of Japan. Okay, so one of the major points of disagreement, which you you mentioned already, although I don't think in name, is the Kuril Islands. So those in particular, at the moment, I think the dispute only covers the closest four islands to Japan. Japan has very much given up on anything north of that. Is, Is that correct? Can you tell me what the tensions are between that and what exactly is in dispute? Yes. So to keep it nice and simple, it's a four island dispute. These are some small islands which are to the north of Hokkaido. When the two countries decided where their border would be in their first international agreement in 1855, it was decided that those islands would be Japanese Mm. and that the border would lie to the north of that. Uh, And so Russia never officially controlled that territory. So Japan considers it its own inherent territory. 
And yet at the end of the Second World War, when uh, the Soviet Union declared war on uh, Japan in August 1945, so right at the very end, uh, Soviet forces continued to advance even after Japan's announcement of its intention to surrender and seize that territory. Mm. So that's how those four islands came under Soviet and then, of course, later Russian control. That consisted of, you know, directly displacing the Japanese population that was there already, didn't it? Yeah, so the population at the end of the war, there was a Japanese population of around 17,000. Yeah, right. For a short period of time, they lived on on the islands under Soviet occupation. But then shortly after the Second World War, Stalin took the decision to deport the entire population. And so that community was deported, most of them settling in nearby Hokkaido. And uh, that community has dwindled over the years, but it still exists. And there's around 5,000 former residents who are still alive in Japan, albeit that their average age is is now well into their 80s. Mm -hmm. And presently, these islands are, are occupied. Do they present a security risk to Japan? Yes and no. There was a... Uh, a period during the Cold War when Japan's principal security threat was the perceived risk of a Soviet invasion of Hokkaido. There is still the concern that Russian forces could engage in some provocations, but they don't really have the military capabilities there to launch a full-on attack on mm. Japan. If you look at the the military resources they have, it's more in order to maintain Russian control over the Sea of Okhotsk. It's not really, uh, you know, troop carrying kind of ships, uh, large numbers of tanks that you would need for a direct attack on Hokkaido. So Japan is worried about uh, approaching Russian aircraft, about the risk of Japanese fishermen being detained by Russian forces. But they don't really see the Russian forces there as being likely to directly attack Japan. What about from a surveillance standpoint? To an extent, but... Mm. It would raise the question of surveillance on On what? what? Okay. So the Japanese forces uh, do use Hokkaido for drills. Uh, The fact that you have a lot of territory there, you know, a lot of space, it's quite useful for carrying out kind of military exercises on Hokkaido. But over the last few years, Japan has increasingly been shifting its uh, force posture away from the north and instead towards the southwest, yeah. with very much uh, the concerns over, over China and preparing for a Taiwan contingency. So I'm not sure really there would be that much to, to gain for the Russians in terms of surveillance. Mm. And just to add to that, the US forces in Japan don't have a major presence on Hokkaido. There's no major US base there. Yeah, okay. No benefit to gain from that standpoint then. So former President Abe in particular put a lot of effort into developing a relationship with Russia. So what was driving Abe's strategy? And do you believe that as much as it can be, that was probably the high point between the two countries? It was a really remarkable moment in Japan-Russia relations. Most Japanese leaders have been sceptical or uninterested in the relationship with Russia. But Abe was very enthusiastic. He uh, sought to build relations of friendship with Putin. He introduced an economic cooperation plan. He even appointed a cabinet minister for economic cooperation with Russia. Mm. What was driving that? I think there were a few factors. One of them was legacy. 
He wanted to be the one to finally resolve the territorial dispute and to sign a peace treaty with Russia. Because the continuation of the territorial dispute has meant that the two sides have never signed a peace treaty to end the conflict after 1945. So if Abe were to do that, that would really be a major foreign policy achievement. So that was one thing. The other thing was to do with China, actually. I think Abe looked at the security situation around Japan and saw that you've got North Korea, you've got China, you've got often difficult relations with South Korea as well. And so his judgment seemed to be that if we can at least normalize our relationship with Russia, if we can maybe draw Russia away from China, then that would have enormous security benefits for Japan. And a final point is Abe, his father was foreign minister. Mm. And as foreign minister during the 1980s, his main goal was to normalize relations with the Soviet Union. And he very much saw it as his life's work. He didn't succeed and he died in 1991. Mm. And so I think that Abe was in part trying to, to finish the work of his father. So there's a mixture of factors that were involved. Coming to your, your second point, that of the high point in relations, yes, it was very different from how relations usually are, but it didn't achieve anything. It was yeah. very clear that Abe didn't get what he wanted from that relationship. Mm, mm. So why hasn't that sort of momentum been maintained? I mean, I realize that there's a war in the Ukraine at the moment, and we will get to the response of Japan in that aspect. But if that wasn't a factor, do you believe that momentum would have continued under the present government? I mean, you mentioned that there was a, a minister in charge of economic relations with Russia, and that I believe that that position might still nominally be there, for example. Yeah, so the momentum's actually gone. You're exactly right. That cabinet position is still there, but it's become a bit of a, an anomaly mm. because actually before the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, this policy had essentially been abandoned. Not officially, because that would have been going directly against Abe, who has become very much a sort of legendary figure within the LDP. But clearly, it had already come to an end. It lost momentum because it had so clearly failed. He'd really put everything into this, and yet he got nothing in return. Mm. He didn't get the two islands back. He didn't get Russia distancing itself from China. And instead, what he got was, in 2020, Russia revised its constitution, making it crystal clear, it's written in there in the revised constitution, that territorial concessions are not acceptable, that Russia will not give up any of its territory. Mm. So that was a real slap in the face for Abe. So under first Prime Minister Suga, who took over from Abe and then under Prime Minister Kishida, they'd already lost interest in that policy. And then obviously uh, we saw the introduction of the tough response following the invasion of Ukraine. When Russia invaded the Ukraine, there was, I believe, a muted response from many countries around Asia in the region. And in many ways, Japan has taken a stance against Russia now. So could you take me through that response? I I found an article of yours, which was maybe a year ago, being very critical on the initial response. So I'm keen to know how you evaluate it now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think now, with more than a, a year gone by, we can see that it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. It depends what you compare it with. If you compare it with some of the, the European countries or the United States, maybe it doesn't look so good. If you compare it with Japan's response in 2014 or with what Japan has done in other cases of sanctions, then it looks very good because overall Japan 
throughout its modern history has been very reluctant to introduce sanctions so, against countries. So sorry, by 2014, you're referring to the Crimea War. That's right. Where so, there was no uh, sanctions put in place. There were token sanctions. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And it really became very clear that Japan's goal was to introduce measures that would have no impact whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And pretty quickly in 2016, Abe resumed his engagement with Putin. So there was no seriousness there in actually punishing Russia. This time, however, there have been extensive economic sanctions personal sanctions. I think the ones that uh, really stand out in terms of Japan's measures is a commitment to phase out Russian coal imports Mm. and also to phase out Russian oil imports. Gas is a different matter. On gas, that's the one area where you could maybe criticise Japan because they have no plan to reduce or phase out imports of Russian liquefied natural gas. Indeed, last year, there was actually an increase in Japan's imports of LNG from Russia. Mm. They account for around 9% of Japan's total imports of, of LNG. But aside from that, it's been pretty good. Japan has committed around $7 billion in financial support for, for Ukraine, has provided non-lethal military equipment to Ukraine as well, and has expelled uh, some uh, Russian diplomats, well, uh, intelligence officers, uh, from Tokyo as well. So overall, you know, I give it a, a B plus. Yeah. Okay. So there's more that could be done. It sounds like mostly in the realms of gas, but do you think that they could be providing more military support within the, the confines of course of, of article nine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's been a big point of debate that Japan has already gone beyond what it's done previously oh, definitely. by providing yeah, yeah. bulletproof vests, by providing some surveillance drones, uh, some various other things as, as well. And that, you could say, is maybe against what the three principles of transferring military equipment actually say, because that says they shouldn't be provided to a country that is party to a conflict, and mm. pretty obviously Ukraine is. Uh, so they've gone quite far already. But yeah, many people are asking, what about arms? What about actually providing Ukraine with weaponry? I think at the moment that's still a a step too far. Uh, Japan has already changed so much in its response. Were it to introduce efforts to actually provide weaponry, I think you'd be likely to see a backlash from the the Japanese public. Uh, Japanese public overall are very supportive of sanctions and financial support to Ukraine. But there's not, according to polling, actually support for providing weapons. It was less than 20% who are in favor of providing Ukraine with weapons. So I think let's not expect too much too quickly from Japan. Mm. Just keeping on the, the public sentiment there, what is the public sentiment, the public impression of Russia? Is there love lost between those two? it's never really been very good. So the cabinet office in Japan does an annual survey on attitudes of the Japanese public towards various foreign countries. Mm. And so they have data on attitudes towards uh, Russia that goes back decades. And it's always been pretty negative. There was a little period in the early 1990s when there was a bit more hope, a bit more positivity. But generally, it's been negative. But yeah, since the invasion, it's gone to its most negative ever. And so we're talking about upwards of 80% of the Japanese public having either negative or very negative 
negative attitudes towards Russia. Yeah, yeah. So as somebody then who researches and watches carefully the Russia-Japan relationship then, what are you looking for? It sounds like there's no silver lining in the relationship on the horizon at all. But are you at the best hoping for some sort of semblance of stability? It's not going to become better Mm. anytime soon. Russia has ended peace treaty talks. Russia has declared that Japan is an unfriendly nation. And from the Japanese side, they are adding to and certainly not considering removing their sanctions. Of course, a lot depends on what happens in Ukraine and also on the relationship between Russia and the United States. It's no secret that Japan takes its lead from the United States on key foreign policy issues. They're not going to pursue a rapprochement with Russia whilst US-Russia relations are so negative. So really, I don't expect that much to occur. If we're trying to be positive, what would be a a good outcome in the near future? It would be to avoid anything worse. Now, I think the Russian side will be looking for opportunities to punish Japan for its sanctions and to deter it from introducing further measures. So that means there's an incentive for Russia to engage in provocations and threatening uh, behavior towards Japan. So right now, we've uh, seen large-scale Russian military exercises uh, to the north of Japan. And this included, on the 19th of April, eight Russian strategic bombers uh, flying a sortie over the Sea of Japan. Mm. And so... This is worrying for Japan. Whilst they're having to deal with North Korean missile launches, with aggressive behavior from China, the last thing they need is Russia also to engage in provocative behavior in the north. So really, some sort of stability, even without any hint of positivity, just not getting worse, that that would be something. Yeah, Japan will be hosting the G7 in Hiroshima, and I'm sure that there will be the opportunity and the intention of bringing up the conflict in the Ukraine and actions that should be taken towards Russia or thinking about those sort of things. What agenda items do you believe will be pushed from the Japanese in this forum? Mm -hmm. So certainly uh, Ukraine will be a a major point, uh, not the only one. The Prime Minister Kishida, his main uh, foreign policy goal is to do with nuclear weapons and to pursue a goal of non-proliferation and shifts towards denuclearization. That's why it's taking place in Hiroshima. So that's his number one priority. Also wanting a show of solidarity towards uh, China. Because after all, that's the main security threat to Japan. And I think that within Japan, there was a lot of concern about President Macron's visit to Beijing. In particular, his suggestion that Taiwan was something that Europe wouldn't necessarily take an interest in, where there is not unity between the European members of the G7, the United States, that was very concerning for Japan. Mm. In particular, because one of the reasons, one of the additional reasons why they've taken a hard line against Russia on Ukraine is they want reciprocity when it comes to East Asian security. They want to say, well, look, on a European security issue, we really helped out. And so when it comes to East Asian security, if there's a contingency over Taiwan, we want you to be doing the same thing. We don't want to be left on our own or only relying on our key partner, the United States. 
Yeah. And this whole motive behind holding it in Hiroshima, which has a very loaded message to tell of itself, do you believe that Japan is trying to take on the mantle more of, of peacekeepers within the region? Well, yeah, they've been forced into into that position by events. The, yeah. uh, during the Cold War, it was pretty straightforward for Japan. It was enough to rely on the United States. The goal had to be maintain great relations with the United States, and that security umbrella is sufficient really for Japan's security. That situation no longer prevails. There are much more serious threats than in the past, uh, coming from China, North Korea, and Russia too. And also the United States, whilst the absolute cornerstone of Japan's security, it's no longer enough. It means that Japan has to do more for itself, building up its own capabilities, its military capabilities, by reducing the legal constraints on their use, and also by building strong security ties with additional partners, mm. such as Australia, India, and uh, NATO countries such as Britain and France. I suppose from Japan's point of view, the main concern when it comes to Russia is actually Russia-China relations. Yeah. As mentioned earlier, they don't really see Russia as a direct military threat. It's very unlikely Russia's going to attack. The main worry for Japan is what happens in Russia-China relations. And there's a worry here in Tokyo that if Russia becomes more and more isolated, weaker and weaker, then it becomes more and more dependent upon China. That gives Beijing leverage over Moscow. And so it raises the question that if there is a Taiwan contingency, what does Russia do? Mm. Do they directly help China? That's somewhat doubtful. Are they really going to get militarily involved around the island of Taiwan? Perhaps not. But still, they could do a lot to assist China, for example, by simultaneously engaging in provocative activities to the north of Japan, thereby splitting Japanese forces and placing an additional burden on the self-defense forces. That's the sort of thing that really worries uh, people thinking about strategic issues in Japan. Yeah, okay. Well, in that instance then, wouldn't there be a logic to at least trying to keep the door open in diplomatic capacity with Russia rather than, at the moment, a very much closed door? That was the goal. That was what Abe was, yeah. was doing. Yeah. And the Russians slammed that door. They made it very clear that they were not really going to consider Japan to be a proper partner. Mm. They continued to regard Japan as being little more than a puppet of the United States and really you know, treated the Japanese side with some disdain. And so that's why that door closed. And then by invading Ukraine, they've simply made it impossible for Japan to continue to engage economically and politically. Yeah. So yeah, there was that logic, but it's just impossible at the moment. If Japan were to suddenly engage, Russia would exploit that. They'd say, look, the West is divided. They would see it as a sign of weakness to be exploited. That was James Brown, Professor of Political Science at Temple University, and you have been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University. If you like this podcast, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any reasonable podcasting platform. Please leave a review there. They are always very appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter. James Brown is at James D. J. Brown, and La Trobe Asia is at La Trobe Asia. 
This podcast was recorded in Tokyo, Japan, and produced at La Trobe University in Melbourne on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.